Hey guys, it's Nathan and this is episode number 25 of the Nathan Seward Show. The Nathan Seward Show. Personal conversations with powerful men. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Great to have you here as always. Thank you for tuning in. I would love it if you could give the show some love on iTunes in the form of a rating and a review. It would mean the world to me while you're listening to the show today. If you could just dive into your podcast app or on iTunes on your laptop. Uh, search for Nathan Seawood in the search on iTunes. And when you find the Nathan Seawood Show, click on the review tab and just give me a, a quick one-line review saying uh, what you love about the show. If you've been listening for a while, get the show completely free. And if you've got any value out of it, your payment to me of one little review on iTunes would mean the world. And I would love you forever, which I think is a pretty damn good deal. This week, I, I've just been rereading a book called Rich Dad Poor Dad, which I'm sure you've heard of. And it was actually the first personal development book I ever read when I was 13 years old, which is kind of crazy. So it's bringing back so many memories uh, of that time as I read it, learning the difference between an asset and a liability, how rich people build assets while poor people spend money on liabilities and all this kind of thing. And he has a lot of profound insights about just the first step to becoming rich is really changing your thinking. If you don't know the premise, it's about this young kid who grows up in Hawaii and his actual dad, his biological father, he calls his poor dad because his dad had a lot of education, worked really hard, became a teacher, earned a really good salary, but just never had any money, always sort of remained poor. So he called him his poor dad. And his best friend's dad uh, was wealthy and owned a bunch of businesses and kept growing his wealth every year. So he called him his rich dad. And he, him and his best friend asked rich dad one day how to become rich and how to make money. And so he takes them through this whole series of different exercises to teach them how the world works. Really amazing. A few things hit a little bit close to home. He talks about why people stay in a job, and it's primarily due to fear and desire. One, the fear of not having enough money, not being able to pay the bills, and that keeps people stuck, you know, working for the man. And also desire, this desire to have things, this desire to buy things, to buy effectively liabilities, cars, boats, or even just, you know, stuff to use around around the home. And those two things, the fear of money, not having money, and the desire to buy things is the two things that keep most people locked in a job and not wanting to um, go out on their own and, and create business and money and assets and become rich for themselves. And I thought that was so interesting. I related that, uh, related to that so much. It's what we call um, in my job the golden handcuffs when the money gets so good that you, you, you've, you need it to pay the bills and you also love the lifestyle it gives you. So he teaches the kids that and eventually they break out of it. And once you've broken away from that, that reliance, then you're free to actually look out for opportunities to create money and create business and create wealth and create assets that earn money while you're not even there, which is the ultimate goal. Anyway, I could talk about it forever because it's so interesting. I'm only just a few chapters in and I'm uh, I'm loving it. So go and check out that book. It's uh, a great book on mindset, uh, not just on building wealth. This week on the show, I have a friend of mine, Destin Garrick, who's a wonderfully fascinating, interesting guy, not like anybody you've ever met before. And we're going deep into sexuality, folks. So I hope you're strapped in because it's a, it's a deep dive into the taboo subjects of sex, sexuality, masturbation, everything. It's all in there. 
Um, Destin himself, he calls himself a transformational empowerment coach. He specializes in helping uh, men to tap into their masculine core, awaken their sexual energy, and harness that newfound power to passionately manifest your biggest visions and create the life of your dreams. He's a self-proclaimed erotic rock star, though he's now retired from that life and is happily in a relationship with his fiance and has a baby on the way. So he takes us through uh, his whole life, all the different things that he's learned about sexuality, which he's been learning since uh, since he was young. And so I think you'll get a lot out of this one. Listen closely and enjoy this personal conversation with the powerful Destin Garrett. I grew up in a working class, uh, blue collar neighborhood and household. My dad was a mailman for 35 years. And uh, my mom was, for the most part, we'll call unemployable. Uh, she was technically morbidly obese for 270 pounds, for those of you listeners who know pounds. Uh, <laughs> and um, uh, when she did get a job, it tends to be minimum wage, which at the time was like four twenty-five an hour. And she didn't last in it very long before she'd get fired or just stop showing up or get fired for not showing up. Yeah, it helped me out more. <laughs> no, you're doing you great. So, what? How did that, that impact? What did that have on you? Like seeing, obviously, that's the first thing you talk about. We talking to your mum is kind of well, it's definitely a big thing. I mean, yeah. for, for the the big things are definitely things around my mom and her weight and predisposition to the world, and my dad um, working way too much at a job he really disliked and with a hour commute each direction on top of that in the winter months you know through snow and uh coming home really unhappy most of the time to a household that he was not happy with and the wife that he was not happy with and the life that he wasn't happy with and that bled over into the whole family um was that very obvious to you that all of that? I don't think I really understood everything that was going on. I didn't understand why he was the way that he was till later. I just knew that he wasn't very enjoyable to be around. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I think that's why I spent a lot of the time in my room with the door closed. I read a lot. Um, I didn't, I, most of my memories of my dad being, I have memories of him being in his uh, room with the door closed, working on bills. I have memories of him yelling and screaming at either my mom or me, much less my sister. And I have, uh, as well as, you know, uh, hitting me, uh, not never close fist, but, you know, um, slaps and spanks and other things, belt type things, um, uh, going to my room crying a lot, and memories of uh, Sunday morning breakfasts, which are my main positive memories of my dad growing up, because uh, Sunday mornings he would make breakfast, usually something like pancakes or waffles or muffins or something very carb-heavy, uh, baking-wise, that um, uh, were really enjoyable and positive, except for the not-too-uncommon situations where somehow something would break down and I'd be sent to my room crying. So... <laughs> Um, so that, that those those are definitely a big 
big parts. When I think of my, my childhood, I, it, it's still harder for me to really grasp the happy memories. Uh, I know that they're there, and, and if I really focus on them, I can, I can pull some, but I definitely relate to it more from the vantage point of, an, of a really unhappy family life. Lots of yelling and screaming and hitting and crying and uh, being really good at school, like being praised for my intelligence a lot, um, but not always having an easy time socially in school. And also, we'll, we'll add, since, we're, since you're getting the best of me right now, we'll also add that I think that a lot of my childhood involved me being picked on by other kids. I think that the stuff in, in my uh, family life really was affecting my self-esteem and the other kids, you know, unconsciously pick up on that and attack yeah <laughs> which only furthered it go for the week the weak spot and what what yeah. part of the world were you growing up in uh long island new, new york so about an hour east of new york city okay cool yeah interesting i find that interesting that um you know looking back on childhood and if there's bad experiences you can just forget the good stuff you and you can it can all present as like this negative experience I know that there was more than that. I do. I have vague memories of certain family vacations, probably mostly because of pictures. Um, and some good, so I definitely have some good memories with the neighborhood kids. Um, I also have memories from the same neighborhood kids beating me up and, <laughs> and otherwise making me cry. <laughs> um, but I definitely have some some positive memories in that regard too. It's, it's, yeah, starting off this way, you're, you're putting, I, I feel the energetic drain in my body <laughs> right from the start of this conversation. <laughs> Thanks, Nathan. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> That's good. Um, I don't think about this a whole lot these days. My, my life has been through massive shifts and transformations since then. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I appreciate that uh, as someone listening or just as me, that, I like to understand the context, you know, and I know you are an incredible person and just, just speaking to you as the, the powerful motherfucker that you are today is really great. But I also like to go back and kind of see why that, why you ended up that way, why you, what brought you to this life. So I know it can be, um, not necessarily difficult, not that much fun, but it, it really helps me. And I think it helps people listening to get that context and that realness totally and i appreciate it i mean there are many other points in my journey that are really friggin' difficult as well and i i appreciate going into those areas because it's too easy for people to look at me today and and be like oh well of course you can say there of course that's easy for you i mean look at you and i'm like are you kidding me do you have any idea where i can come from or what my life's been like no <laughs> I, I have, yeah, no, you have, I've given little, little droplets of it. And my, my journey of getting where I am has been difficult. And if there's anything that has gotten me here, uh, it's been tenacity. It's just been a refusal to give up. And, uh, you know, there's this ancient Japanese proverb that I love uh, that says, fall down seven times, get up eight. And that's, that's the story of my life. I've fallen down 7,000 times. I just... I've gotten up 7,001. Where does it lead you as you, when, when do you leave home? When do you get out of that environment for the first oh, time? Well, as soon as I could. <laughs> <laughs> Understandable. Uh, as soon as I graduated high school, I, I moved to New York City. Uh, my dad moved out, though, when I was 15, and okay. that, was, that was a huge shift right there. Um, it was a few years, really, before I would communicate much with him. Um, and then ultimately realizing that um, 
he was a changed man, that the person I was interacting with. It took me a couple of years to really get this. So I think they started making major shifts immediately after moving, but I couldn't accept it for at least a couple of years. Um, I still related to him as an asshole. <laughs> and, then, and then I started realizing, well, I don't, he's not, I'm, this is a different person. And um, Are you guys still, close now? Yeah, yeah. We just talked today, in fact. Um, it was still another seven plus year, probably 10 years after he moved out before I really hit that I want to have a better relationship with my family. And the only way that's going to happen is if I put in the effort. And so I did. Yeah. And I put in a lot, a lot of effort. And I did change those relationships. Yeah. It's interesting that it, you don't feel like it would have come from him. If you just left it, it would have, you would have stayed separate. Um, yeah, I just think that it would have been more superficial, um, you know, there would have been connections, but I mean, even in all honesty, even still, if I just let it, my dad is happy to just talk about the weather, his health and the grandkids every time we speak. And that's it. It's not enough for you. It's not enough for me. <laughs> yeah. I, I understand this one. I, I have a similar relationship with my dad and that it's not enough for me either, but maybe it's a generational thing. I don't know, but I sometimes feel angsty about having to do all the work to get that connection. Sometimes it annoys me, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it is what it is. And I'll, I'll put in the effort. I'm still in a place where I'm, I moved, I moved away from the family when I was 18 and first I moved to New York city. And then, uh, five years after that, I moved to San Francisco. Nine years after that, I moved down to LA and then a year and a half ago, I moved down to the San Diego area where I am now, sprinkling 27 countries. Um, uh, but my family doesn't doesn't come visit me. I mean, my since I moved, in all of that, my dad visited me maybe maybe once or twice in New York, and tw I think twice in San Francisco, and never in LA and never here. So that means never in the past eight years, nine years. And my mom's visited me twice, once in San Francisco and once in the LA area. My sister has visited me zero times in 21 years. So that gets to me. Yeah. Um, every year, uh, often twice a year, I've made the trip out to the East Coast and um, feeling like it's my responsibility or it's not going to happen uh, definitely gets to me sometimes. Yeah, what do you think that is? Do you think they just um, they just feel like, oh, you're the one that's left home, so <laughs> you're the one that has to come back? Or is it um, deeper than that? I think, or? I think that's part of it. Um, I think that my life has always been scary to the family. Uh, especially, I mean, we haven't really gotten into my crazy life, but uh, yeah, I spent seven years as a self-proclaimed erotic rock star. I think my life was scary. Um, they didn't. They thought, you know, it's better for us to not know. We'll just be here, pretend, pretend that you know he's just the same little boy, <laughs> and when he comes by, we'll treat him as that, which is always great. <laughs> That's that rum dust thing. If you think you're enlightened, you know, go and spend a week with your family. You know, it's, it is, though, a, an indicator for me of how much growth I have made that 
there is such a huge difference when I go visit the family now. And uh, even if they're completely the same, I engage so differently. I respond so differently. I'm not reactive anymore. Um, I can just, I mean, the big thing is I can just let them be them and me be me and it's fine. You know, I don't need to try to prove anything or change anything uh, or try to get them to change. I mean, friggin' last October when I visited, I got, uh, it became clear to me that my brother-in-law was voting for Trump and I just kept my mouth shut. I'm like, this is not why I did not come out here to have this argument. <laughs> I have like one day left. Let me just bite my tongue and move on. <laughs> it's so, so funny. It's a, it's a big thing. Like, I mean, far out. We could spend a whole podcast just talking about families and family interactions. But um, yeah, it's just interesting to get that perspective. Like, it doesn't matter how much work you've done. This is always going to be, there's always going to be bite your tongue moments with your family, right? But it's okay. I mean, I prefer to have bite my tongue moments and then listen and be, and preferably even get curious and ask questions than to be reactive, uh, than to turn it into a, a battle. Or even if I feel that somebody in the family was trying to bait me into battle, I'm just not going to bite anymore. I'm not interested. You know, my, my mom, my mom passed away relatively suddenly three years ago. And I just think of how many friggin' battles I particularly witnessed between my sister and my mom and that me and my mom used to have, but I gave up on those earlier. Um, and just think of, I'm not, I'm, I'm not willing to do that anymore. You know, it's just like, okay, I, yeah, we're different. We see the world differently. Um, just, perhaps over time I've had my, I've had little bits of influence and other ways not, that's fine. I'm, I'm, my focus is on helping people, uh, create shifts in their lives who are coming to me to create shifts in their lives, not people who aren't. And most especially not my family. If they come to me wanting something great. I'm happy to be there. Otherwise live and let live and love, you know, use this practice of unconditional love. How did your mom's death change you? <laughs> in a lot of ways uh, i think it's a lot uh my my uh fiance is 13 weeks pregnant right now congratulations uh thank you um we uh are getting married in august and baby's due in december believe it or not not a shotgun wedding we had the wedding planned before <laughs> the pregnancy came about <laughs> um and uh, i think my mom's death has a lot to do with that I think my, my mom's death has a lot to do with the relationship, period. Ellie is a very, my fiance is a very different woman and relationship than I'd ever been in before. And I think that um, when, my, my, when my mom passed, the drive for family suddenly shot up inside of me, re-shifted uh, shifted all of my priorities. I, I've done a lot of what we can say partying in my life in a wide variety of ways, and as well as um, casual sex and connections and blah, blah, blah. And I just lost all interest almost overnight. And it was just like, it became clear to me what, where, what I wanted at this point. It's funny. I, I was like, I was like, I really want to have a baby by the time I'm 40. And now my baby's going to be born four months before I'm 40. <laughs> so. That's amazing. Isn't it? <laughs> That's powerful intention. Um, yeah. I love that we've planted a lot of seeds about, you know, all the exciting parts of your life and we'll get there. But uh, thanks for building the suspense for people. Um, <laughs> t take me through your early 20s, you know, like what, what was happening then? Uh, 
early 20s. Uh, undergraduate years uh, were at NYU, New York University, with a uh, major in sociology and a concentration in human sexuality. So I've been doing work around sexuality for for 20 years now, really. And um, NYU offered a graduate program, master's degree in sexuality education. So by the time I was a junior, I kind of fought my way into those classes and kept taking those classes until I graduated. Um, uh, after that, I, I did some... Uh, yeah, I just did various work around um, around sexual edu- education. I worked for a progressive organization uh, teaching sex education to middle school and high school students, which eventually I got fired from because it was a progressive organization, but I was quite radical. Right. So, <laughs> um, I dabbled in political activism and street activism stuff during my college years. And I experienced and witnessed a rather high amount of police brutality during that time that really shocked my system and shocked my entire beliefs around how the world works and our government and our police and um, the idea that they're just there to serve and protect me (laughs) and uh, um, really shattered that that illusion. and uh, that's, that's a huge story, but um, it had a massive impact on my life. Started reading all sorts of autobiographies uh, like uh, Gandhi's autobiography and Martin Luther King Jr.'s as well as Malcolm X's and uh, Abby Hoffman and some of the like 60s revolutionary like countercultural movement leaders. Um, and I was just really drawn to this idea of one person being able to have such an impact on the world. Not too big of a shock. Uh, um, moved out to San Francisco for because they had started a new master's program in human sexuality. And um, then um, I was in that program. Well, I, I focused my, under, my graduate uh, degree and thesis was going to be on male circumcision and its effects on male and female sexuality. I read a good 20 books and academic books on the subject, a ton of research studies. I and six months prior to uh, graduate graduating, you know, with an incomplete thesis, I dropped out. I was uh, very unhappy within the program. I felt that it was um, academia for academia's sake. Like I'd spent all this time finding my written voice, and I felt like it was being squeezed out of me and turned into a way of writing that would only have like 0.01% of the population want to read. Um, and it, I felt a need to have a bigger impact on the world, and I felt that that would allow me to have. Um, meanwhile, I'd gotten very involved in uh, campus politics and uh like uh, while I was in in the graduate program and doing that thesis, I started a, a student organization called Students for Genital Integrity. Because <laughs> while I started my master's thesis, a, a little ambivalent on the circumcision issue, by the time I was that far in it, I had a very, very strong opinion and set of emotions around uh, against it. Oh, um, so I was against it, was your opinion? Yeah, I, my opinion on this is that it's one of those issues that the more you know, the worse it is. Right. So um, I started this organization that was designed to bring together uh, students uh, around, well, bring together three movements, the quote-unquote anti-male circumcision movement, the 
uh, those working against female, quote unquote, female genital mutilation, um, uh, sometimes known as female circumcision. Uh, And third, uh, those working against the sex reassignment surgeries of intersex children, which somewhere in the vicinity of one in a thousand children are born with what we'll call ambiguous genitals. And uh, historically, uh, from like early 70s, the doctors would just go in there with a scalpel, and as they put it, it was easier to dig a hole than to build a pole, i.e. they would turn the ambiguous genitals into a, a... vulva and vagina and just call them girls problem is another 15 20 years later you started to find oh well actually these kids are growing up to feel really fucked up around this and really resentful and so um in the adult world so to speak these three organizations tend to want to have nothing to do with one another politically speaking they just thought the others were problematic and what have you so they wanted and me i just thought that was absolutely ridiculous we're all talking about the same thing that taking a scalpel to a baby's genitals is a problem and so i decided that if i start uh, if i start at the college campuses um those who are interested in any of these three bringing them all under one umbrella, it will be normal and natural to them, the connection between these three, so that then if they get involved as they graduate to college in any of these organizations, they'll help pull these organizations more together. So that was my thinking on it. Within the year and a half that I was in grad school, we moved to have eight uh, chapters on eight different university campuses across the country with me as national director. So I was proud of that, but what I didn't understand at that time was... um, there's all I did, didn't understand about leadership. So when I dropped out of co- uh, grad school and thereby also left the organization, it all fell apart. Right. Um, so that's something I've really, the lessons I've really learned that I'm building into the things that I, I do today to build stronger structures that allow something to grow that's bigger than myself. Why did you choose sexuality in the first place? Like when you went to NYU, why did you start diving into that initially? Uh, yeah, also feel free to interrupt me or redirect me at any time. I have a billion stories and can randomly dive into any of them. Uh, <laughs> the um, Yeah, I didn't even finish that. Why sexuality? Um, when, we're, when a child is born, they, are, they tend to think that the world is perfect exactly as it is, and their job is to simply to grow up to understand how to be in that world. And somewhere along the line, uh, we experience what literature tends to call the fall from grace, the realization that things are not quite right in this world, that uh, things aren't the way they could be. And uh, sometimes this happens gradually, and sometimes it happens with a big pow of trauma or what have you. The first thing that I can recall anyway, where I really got that, was around sex and sexuality, that there's something going on here that people are really weird about. And what's going on here? And my intellectual mind got curious even before my, I don't know, pubescent <laughs> uh, drive and urges of, of trying to understand what's, what, why are people like this about this thing that seems to be all around, but at the same time, <laughs> So like, as, a, as a kid, you sensed the taboo around sexuality. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that first brought it up. Then in high school, uh, you heard this. You heard the story, so I'm going to give a, a, a quicker summation here. We'll just say that my uh, my high school sweetheart was raped on her 15th birthday a few months before we met, 
I ended up being the first person that she ended up telling. We ended up in a three-year relationship, and the impact of that rape was ever-present. At uh, 16 and a half, which I was when I first found out about it, I was ill-equipped to handle it emotionally. And I mean, honestly, all through the next <laughs> three years, I was ill-equipped. And uh, at one point, being in the midst of all the, my pain around the whole thing, I made a, a declaration that I was going to do everything I can with my life to help create a world where things like this didn't happen. And while there have been many complicated twists and turns along the way, you can really trace things back to them. Mm. That's amazing. Amazing to see like where, you, where you've gone with it right, right from the start. I have to ask the question, um, why did you get fired from the sex education teaching? <laughs> what was the moment? <laughs> uh, I have all sorts of right. hilarious images in my head, but I want you, you to tell me the story. So I can't say for certain. I, um, I will say that I didn't really, I've never been one to really care a whole lot about taboos. Um, I really have always been more of a truth seeker and very quick and easy to speak to truth and just deal with the consequences. <laughs> uh, even before I realized that there would be consequences, I would just do it. <laughs> so uh, we had a qu- an anonymous questions box that would go around uh, every day, and the kids would put questions in it, and I would uh, take them home, and the next morning pull questions and read them out loud and answer them. This is where the kids could ask what they wouldn't otherwise ask. And I would just answer them exactly um, to the best of my knowledge, given all of the, the, you know, the deep study that I was doing around sexuality at the time. And sometimes I think that the teachers didn't like my answers uh, because they're too blunt. They're too direct. Or maybe one of the kids would go home and complain to his parents or say something to his parents. His parents would complain. So what exactly? I don't know. But it was probably in there. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, I... Yeah, I sense this. I don't know how to say this, but like I, for me, you know, sex, the taboo thing has always been there. There's always been an awkwardness around talking about it. Well, I don't ever remember talking to my parents about it, having the talk. Um, so forgetting my own sexuality, uh, even just around sex in general, there's a lot of, I don't know, awkwardness around that for me. So I found like initially talking to you quite intimidating. Do, mm. do you have that experience quite a lot with people? Uh, well, I don't really have the experience. Other people have it. Exactly. That's what I mean. Do you have the experience of other people being um, uncomfortable? I am sure I only find out about it a small fraction of the times, you know, it takes the person who feels it to end up saying something to me. And my guess is most of the people who feel it don't ever say anything to me. So let's just say you're not the first time I've heard it. (laughs) I have heard it many times and I assume there are many more. Why is it taboo? Like, why is it so awkward? That's probably a complicated question, but what's the basic answer to that? Well, we, we live or, and grew up anyway in, um, Anglo countries. Uh, uh, you know, I'm the U S you're from New Zealand, all have their English roots and the Victorian era has a lot to do with it. Um, that that era that had really strong anti-sexual uh, morals pushed uh, uh, amongst the population, um, including a strong anti-masturbation hysteria, um, strong pushes for anything outside of uh, wedlock uh, being uh, something that's not only taboo but you know punished and sometimes punished very strongly, especially. Um, 
uh, particularly women being punished. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it, it spread when the, the Catholic Church, I mean, you can really push, you can really go back before the Victorian time, but I think things really amped up. Uh, through that, but the the Catholic Church had pushed a sexist sin agenda for a very very long time, and as the missionaries would go into different countries, um, you know, over over the years, they would shift cultures, cultures that had previously uh, didn't have sexual shame issues, were really like India and Japan that were very open and sexually expressed aren't anymore. Thanks to the thanks to the Christian missionaries, even if they're not Christian countries now, there's still an impact. So, so you think we still like, even though like my family's not religious or anything, but we just have this hangover from generations oh, yeah. of yeah. yeah, we're still carrying it though. I mean, the, these types of uh, shame, guilt, and fear is easy to to pass on, and it will mm. remain in you unless you actively confront it. And I think that that our generation now is confronting it more than ever, but you know it's probably still going to take a, uh, another generation or two or three <laughs> yeah. to really move that needle. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I I've always felt it like you know being gay that, but I guess it's 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 equally the same in in, in straight with straight sex that it is this kind of um, guilty, shameful thing that you do behind closed doors. Well, it's different. Um, you know, I mean, some things are, are the same. Some things are definitely different. I mean, you know, e- even being this uh, out gay man running this podcast, being a coach in the world, a pilot, blah, blah, blah. Like I, a generation ago, that's highly unlikely. I mean, anyway, it, it, there, there have been huge changes, huge changes. When I was in college, uh, being and doing all this work around sexuality, the, the the gay and queer rights struggle was part of the culture of the sexuality uh, educator community. And uh, things like gay marriage seemed so far away. Now, granted, it actually was like 18 years away, so it was pretty far. <laughs> but uh, but still, like when when it when it came, it seemed to come fast. You know, it was like decades of buildup and then <laughs> yeah and i know that you know that, that it's still many more countries uh still hold taboo or even Ill, uh illegal uh unsanctioned than those that that are holding marriage equality um but things are cha- you know things are changing i think that the what's happening with uh, queer rights is is emblematic of that change and part of it you know, queer culture has partly because of the way in which the sexuality, uh, because of the way in which you've been othered so much for so long, the sexuality is so embedded into queer identity and queer culture, we'll say. So I think that that um, as that as culture is being embraced more easily, uh, that's one of the gifts that's that's I think it's that queer culture is bringing in is relax around sex. <laughs> you yeah. know, that's, uh, I think, I think that that's really helping. It's, yeah. Sex is okay. Is it, what are the common themes that you see? I mean, you deal with this all day, every day. So what's the things that you keep seeing around, um, around sex? Like, again, for me, there's just this, um, again, forget the sexuality, but just having a really deep, loving, connected 
relationship, but then sex being this thing over here. That's well, that's like, the first problem. Yeah. The first problem is the compartmentalization and there's, there's your life and then there's sex. Exactly. There's you and then there's your sexuality as if they're completely separate things. Um, part of the eradication of sexual shame, guilt, and fear um, requires a, an integration of your sexuality more into the whole of who you are. It's part of you. It's a gift of being human. Uh, it's not the separate thing. It is you. It's not the only part of you, but it, it's there. And I believe it would be much more there if we didn't repress and suppress it so much, so much so that most of the time I think we're completely unaware of the ways we're repressing and suppressing because it's just so ingrained. What are the common <laughs> ways? Like, what was the, the common ways that people would do that? Oh, well, hmm. well, I think the, the most common ways is simply the not speaking about it. Mm. Uh, you know, what we put language is powerful, and where we're, when we can speak about anything and everything but but not this, that automatically puts it in the realm of taboo. If there's something to be guilty about, it's something to be ashamed of, something to be afraid of. And as we create that relationship to it, uh, it's going to affect our sex lives. But I also think that a big part of it starts in, in pre-adolescence to adolescence, aka when our sexuality comes online, so to speak, and we begin to masturbate. And that masturbation um probably going places in your podcast that you have not gone before totally it's so, <laughs> awesome and uh most people's ex initial experiences of masturbation is they're in their parents home or guardian and let me do this as quickly and quietly as possible so i don't get caught so right from the start you are in you are linking guilt shame and fear to your sexuality it's an innate Every, thing that you just is there. I, I don't like the the phrase innate personally. Um, that to me seems immutable, as if it's just so. But I don't think it's just so. I think it's culturally created. Right. And I, I make the distinction because we can change it. And a big part of how to change it is uh, shifting our relationship to it in adulthood and in how we raise our own children. So by uh, by starting our sexual journeys with that sense of, I need to hide this, I need to be quiet, I need to be quick about this. First of all, you're training your body to be quick about this, <laughs> which this is why one of the other major things I work with all the time is men who are dealing with ejaculating quicker than they'd like to. Totally. Hmm, connection? So. <laughs> yeah, amazing. So uh, well, let, let, let's, let's circle back a little bit. Take me through your own journey, right? So yeah, that you, <laughs> you, you, you become a sexual rock star god. Erotic. Yeah. <laughs> erotic rock star god it's okay cool i got i did a, a radio show like terrestrial radio show uh, a couple weeks ago he's like is this is this the sexual rock and roll dude <laughs> <laughs> erotic rock star we're close enough <laughs> yeah rock and roll just doesn't quite have that same erotic feel to it um so when does that start to happen why did you decide or was it a decision how did it come about what does it actually mean hmm so first of all, the erotic rock star is primarily behind me these days. I definitely, I, the fact that he's been a part, been who I was in the past definitely lives on in ways within me, but huge, huge change. Um, he was really born in 2007, so uh, just over, probably 10 and a half years ago. Um, I, was, I was in love with a circus performer 
uh, <laughs> uh, she was a trapeze artist, clown. I mean, still walker, performer of all stripes. And um, she really pulled out both my exhibitionist streak as well as my overall performer self. She gave me permission, really. I think there were elements of this that existed in me, but I, I before her, it was like, oh, no, I don't know. Don't draw too much attention. Don't stand out too much. And then I remember this first time uh, spending time with her, and we were out, you know, dancing. But um, she would play with these uh, crystal balls, which I play with now. But uh, we were together for a few years, and she rubbed off on me in big, big ways. And we were out, out dancing, and I see her just kind of look and find the spot. And I just kind of followed along, which was very emblematic of how I was in that relationship. I just followed along. And and she put out her bag, and she pulled out her her three-and-a-half-inch diameter uh, crystal ball. She's all decked to the nines, um, mid-rift, probably sequined, uh, strapless top and booty shorts and platform boots and by the way i spent most of this relationship wondering what a woman like this was doing with with me <laughs> another problem in the relationship <laughs> and uh she pulled out her ball and she just started dancing and moving and in seconds she had a crowd circled around her and i just stood to the side mouth hanging open like holy crap what the hell is happening yeah like it, this is okay. Uh, she's she's basically just deciding to put a spotlight on herself, and everybody loves it. It's not. There's nothing wrong with that. It's and and something again gave me permission. And uh, with her, particularly at first, I started just playing with allowing my own exhibitionist to come out, my own performer to come out out, out more, and until he became just very much how I was moving through the world. <laughs> um, I started playing with my own dress, not to fit in, but to stand out. And um, uh, long story short, we started kind of creating a little bit of a performance act together, and um, at one point, we, I think she's the one who coined the term erotic rock star first. And it was initially, actually, the, the initial website was eroticrockstars.com. Um, though it was, I don't think it ever ended up being more than one page. Um, and nothing really came of that. And by really starting to play with that idea, because our sexuality was such a huge part of our relationship. And here I was a sexuality educator, and she was a aside from a circus performer she was also a sometimes stripper and she brought me into that world so much as well we had a stripper pole in the apartment uh imagine a, a tiny little rundown one bedroom apartment in a not so good uh, uh neighborhood and a stripper pole in it and she would she would dance for me but she would also teach me and i would play and i got i actually got really good on the pole and then we started playing you know creating a duet and then we would go to these different dance events and underground parties we would just play with each other publicly and often with a sexual flair to it and this, and uh, people loved it and we loved it and we loved people loving it and uh, then we then we broke up badly and it was really painful then i started to explore um who how do i take all these things that she brought into my world and make them mine and so i continue to play with my dress my my erotic rock star look only now it wasn't with her touch and it completely changed it's uh, it masculinized more in all honesty it um uh 
believe it or not. Uh, it's, um, uh, yeah, I don't know. Everything, I, I, I start putting my money that was going into her, which I didn't have very much money at all, time in all honesty. Um, uh, maybe 25000 a year, if that. Um, uh, but I would put it towards sexy clothing and uh, and uh, just playing with those words erotic and rock star and when I would go whether I was going you know when I was going shopping what if I saw something that fit into those flavors in my mind boom it was mine um, I started to play with the erotic rock star as an archetype of my own creation so I started to imagine him being well initially being everything that I didn't think of myself as so the ways in which I felt shy, he was an exhibitionist. The ways in which I might have been like, yeah, I was very comfortable with girls, with women. I would um, very easily be friend, you know, become friends with them. Um, now, like you know, he would he would create instant attraction and um, create a seductive, energetic draw with women while out with no intention, I mean, sometimes intention, but sometimes no intention of anything other than catching her eye. Just, it was a little ego game for much of it, honestly. All I want is her eye and a smile. I'm gonna move on and do it with somebody else and somebody else and somebody else and somebody else. I'm going to drop on a dance floor and dance with 100 people tonight. And I started just creating these little challenges for myself and leaning into them and leaning into them and I really creating an erotic rock star life and whatever whatever I thought that would mean and how far I could push it and creating sexier and sexier lives. I ended up following and creating my my every sexual fantasy, and I mean every sexual fantasy, and start pushing the new ones I didn't even have. If I heard of somebody else's fantasy, okay, let me try that. Um, <laughs> and really got to this point where I felt like I had created an ability to quote unquote seduce just about anybody I ever wanted to without, uh, while primarily eschewing the whole pickup culture, which I was very repelled by. Um, in many ways, I considered my erotic rock star as my artistic spiritual respo response to, uh, I mean, this is 2007, the, that industry was peaking around in that time period. And I felt like it was, I mean, particularly at the time, I felt like it was misogynistic and lacked heart and spirit. And I'm like, I love women and I have an, a huge heart and a strong spirituality. So um, I want to show, if not the world, myself, that I can have you know, inc incredible quote unquote success with women and with life by being this heart-centered, spiritually oriented man who, who's in awe of women and honors who they are in the world, um, at least as much, if not more so, you know, this whole pickup community. And uh, I succeeded beyond my wildest dreams. <laughs> um, I continued to fall, because on top of that, I had all these sexual skill sets that all of my education and training, oh, plus in 2006, I did my sexological bodywork training through the Institute for the Advanced Study of Human Sexuality. I dove into uh, Tantra and the Tantra community for seven years. I rose up through those ranks, started teaching uh, workshops and trainings for other people around Tantra. I started hobnobbing and connecting with the, the other like top teachers in that realm, started uh, traveling around the world, um, speaking at Tantra and, uh, conferences and sexuality and consciousness uh, conferences. Uh, so, I mean, I was, I was gaining incredible skill sets as well as, 
ego. <laughs> um, but I, my whole relationship with my ego is much more complicated than the way that um, some people like to uh, project. Um, because most of the time it was with awareness. I would say it to myself and to people close to me that um, I at the same time in my life, I was actively exploring my ego and egolessness. You know, I was diving into my spirituality and meditation and a service. And, um, and I was exploring the erotic rock star and being in full expression and being, uh, being the center of attention and putting a spotlight on me and <laughs> on and on and dancing between those two worlds. Yeah, just exploring the full range. That's crazy. It was a very crazy life. <laughs> and how do you think, I mean, I have a million questions. <laughs> um, I'm sure. How, how do you think like that, you know, that erotic, or just eroticism, sex, performing and spirituality match up? Well, the thing is we, the fact that we create uh, a schism in much of modern society between sexuality and spirituality doesn't mean that it's inherently so. Sure. Um, Sexuality was my my major gateway to the divine. Hmm. It was through uh, through these powerful sexual experiences that that I would experience egolessness. It was there that I would I would uh, li- get completely out of my mind, be f- fully present in the moment, fully in my body, fully in my senses, drop into deep connection, deep intimacy with this person I was engaged with, allow my heart to pour open, uh, meld with them, sometimes to the point where I couldn't tell where I ended and they began and vice versa, have moments or experiences of melding into universal consciousness itself. I mean, those are powerful sexual experiences and I was having them primarily through sex. And then, I mean, uh, orgasm itself, or orgasm itself, it, I look at it as it's it's an experience of divine bliss in this physical form, you know, where where everything else can just completely disappear. I've never thought of this before, but you know, like now that you're talking about, it, I see bringing together everything we've just talked about, where it's like there's this um, fear and shame around sex and this compartmentalized thing around sex, and so I guess inherently I've been thinking about it as like, oh, here's my spiritual life. And then I fall out of that and I go and do this dirty sexual thing. That is typical. Uh, Sex as one sphere, spirituality as this other sphere. And not only are they separate, but they're opposing one another. I I believe that it's a false schism and that that false schism messes up, messes us up big time. But rather that these that these two things, our spirituality and our sexuality are two greatest gifts that we've been given as human beings something that you can trace back throughout the beginning of humanity through the, as being part of us, a connection to something larger than ourselves and this endless seeking of what is this thing that's larger than ourselves, as well as this drive around our sexuality and our endless seeking of what is this, our sexuality. <laughs> yeah. Who were you like pre-2007? You, you obviously, you were deep in the study of sexuality. But, in but terms- I was more sex geek like. I was a, <laughs> I was a nerd, you know, right. um, very academic. The very opposite of an erotic rockstar. Definitely not. He was he was he was my fantasy that I brought into reality, and then and then pushed him beyond wherever my fantasy previous <laughs> was. Um, do, do you feel like the um, the girl that you were dating that was uh, in the um, the circus was she? Yeah. 
did she awaken something that was already in you? Uh, she definitely awakened something. I guess it was in me because it came out of me. I just, um, she created a monster. Uh, <laughs> I guess my real um, question is, is this available to all men or is this something that's specific to you that was awoken in I you? I can't imagine that's specific to me. Um, I'm not sure that all men would want the experience that I had. I imagine um, there's a lot the of people listening, a lot of, a lot of guys listening that, that the thought of, pole dancing in an underground bar you know in an erotic way is mortifying i'm sure i'm sure now imagine two other three quarters naked women uh <laughs> dancing with you and grinding on you and around you uh Improves during the experience bit. yeah I, i've got plenty of uh photos and documentation <laughs> perfect <laughs> um the so these days i work with um a different archetype uh, and with that, a different brand. And this archetype in the brand is what I dub the the evolved masculine. And in many ways, he speaks of my own evolution. And but at the same time, while he's an evolution, he it, he evolved from the erotic rock star. Mm. The roots of so much of what I bring into that work were born during the erotic rock star years. And so what I do with the men that I work with today is I help them crystallize a vision of their own, their own archetype. I, these types I primarily, primarily refer to as their evolved masculine self. Um, you know, perhaps their evolved masculine self is an erotic rock star. At the time, he was an evolution to who I was prior to the erotic rock star. But then I hit a point where he was no longer doing it for me. I needed something else. So I believe that we have an incredible capacity to create change in our lives that goes far beyond what our larger society teaches us is possible. And that we have the capacity to reinvent ourselves repeatedly throughout our lives, to recreate who we are, not only to others, but to ourselves, and to, to uh, live into better and better versions of ourselves. And that's a, that's a huge part of what I do with the men that I work with in the Evolved Masculine Path, the, the program that I've developed. How much is uh, eroticism and sexuality a part of your work with these men? It's a sizable chunk, at least half. Uh, <laughs> we, we, we cover three main areas uh, called deep masculine empowerment. Uh, who are you as a man? How do you relate to being a man? What kind of man do you want to be in the world? How do you relate to this whole, this, this thing called masculinity? Um, and what are the aspects of that that you want to cultivate more of in your life? And what is your own sense of mission and purpose in the world? Uh, as well as developing a strong sense of confidence and personal empowerment in that process. The second is sexual self-mastery. This is reprogramming yourself around sex. <laughs> uh, most of us have been programmed poorly. <laughs> so so um, releasing sexual shame, guilt, and fear, uh, coming to connect to your sexual energy as an energy and how to work with and master that energy rather than it being the master of you so that um, you have total choice over if and when you ejaculate. You experience, well, first of all, let, me, let that one lands because that's a big deal. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> People are like, uh, what? That exists? <laughs> yeah, I, I actually define premature ejaculation not as like if you come in under two minutes, but rather if you ejaculate any time before you chose to. Mm. If you weren't, if it wasn't conscious choice, it was premature. If it was before you wanted to or you and your partner were happy and satisfied. And so uh, how to shift that so you can be a choice, um, which is really rooted in understanding uh, the, the energy of your sexuality and how to work with and move it rather than just 
building up in your pelvis and then popping. That's the tantric aspect? Yeah, it's it's rooted. All of my work has its roots in Tantra. I, I don't talk about it a whole lot because not everybody knows how to relate to that term. Um, but it's such a huge part of me. It's everything I do is built off of Tantra concepts, but I've done my best to ground them, to take my esoteric explorations and ground them into something that's much more tangible for people. And the third area is what we call understanding and gratifying women. Um, this part, you know, since I'm speaking to you, I'll speak directly to this, that uh, I, I'm challenged by this part of, of my program because I am a very cosmopolitan and progressive and inclusive type of a person. And on one hand, I want the work that I do to feel more welcoming to queer men and including, you know, exclusively gay men, uh, meaning gay men who have no interest in women. Uh, <laughs> um, and I don't know how to do that right now. I also know that I made a, a very specific choice quite a while ago with my work when I was living in San Francisco and uh, gay male culture was very much around me. And I had people around me tell me, oh, you know, you should, you should focus here. You'll, ta you'll take off in an instant. And I, f I felt into it and I opted against it primarily because I felt like there's a problem that I'm really driven to help be part of the solution for. And that the problem, um, rape and sexual assault, is not really rooted in the gay male community. Not to say it doesn't happen there, it does, but when you look at the global scale, that's not where the root of the problem is. The root is in hetero-identified men, and I made a specific decision to focus my attention there. And so what I built out definitely targets I know I certainly have men who fit all over the spectrum. I've even had a couple of gay men go through the program, though particularly the Understanding Gratifying Women section was challenging uh, in that regards. But anyway, that, that section... Oh, I can see, like, yeah, well, you're still, uh, you know, like you said, you're driven from that 16-year-old um, desire, you know, to, like you said, everything's rooted in that to try and change the culture so we don't have that sexual assault rape culture. Exists. Yeah, and, and, and to, to, to clarify on that, it's like for me, it's not about heterosexual men are bad. It's it, it's that we have something in our socialization that has created a fucking problem that is not that I view as a cultural problem, and so I'm not. I don't really care about pointing fingers or blaming anybody. I'm just focusing, focusing on helping up-level our culture. Um, I believe that men can do better. I believe that men can be better. And we need better role models. And that's a big part of what the Evolved Masculine Path is about, is helping to create more good, positive role models for men, especially, especially role models of what healthy masculine sexuality can look like. Because where are those role models? Yeah, absolutely. The thing that, that, that I see a lot of parallels, you know, being being gay, although the where you're coming from is is different in terms of, you know, your mission, what you're creating. But in terms of gay culture, maybe the rape, sexual assault thing is not so prevalent. But um, it's, of course, yeah, but it, it's more about understanding how do you, because men can be very sexualized and same kind of thing, the, the, the shame, the separation from relationship. I think we we can be more expressed sexually, you know, as a rule. Um, 
we're more open to having open relationships and stuff like that. That's more accepted in our culture. But there's still the challenge of how do you create a strong, long-term relationship? Yeah, sure. And gay male culture, historically, I mean, so much of the focus has been on hookup culture. Um, and, uh, you know, you spoke of how, as a general rule, there can be that, that um, you know, gay men can be more sexually expressed. Well, I, you know, I think that's, it's a bit of a paradox because on for other parts of gay male culture, it's there's an oversexualization. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, which I definitely think that I oversexualized myself, and the cultures I was part of definitely played a role in a variety of other things. But you know, there are aspects of that oversexualization that are a lot of fun. <laughs> a lot of fun are really fantastic, and when they don't necessarily set you up to be able to have. Uh, you know, healthy, stable, uh, long-term relationships. And so that's like a whole other skill set. feels like a disconnect again. It feels like you either have an over-sexualized life or you have a, a healthy, long-term committed relationship, but the, never the twain shall meet. So what do you imagine it could look like if those two met? Well, I think that's what's interesting. Like a lot of my friends and, you know, in, the, in gay culture say that if you want to have a long-term relationship, you're going to have to be open. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. I don't know the answer. That, that That's their experience, right? Um, I don't know that answer either. I, but it's also I, like I see a lot of people, yeah. like a lot, of, a lot of straight people would never even think to explore, have an open relationship. They would rather break up than explore anything outside the norm of what a relationship can look like. I find that more crazy than having <laughs> a long-term relationship that's open. Yeah. Thank you very well said. Again, I think this is one of the things that um, – gay and queer culture is helping expand that conversation and yeah the 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 polyamory slash open relationship uh communities are are continuing to grow that conversation is becoming more prevalent in the mainstream but it's still a a, you know a definite minority let's put it that way Uh, over the years i've had many uh interviews that i've done like this where where the interviewers wanted me to talk about poly uh, talk about uh, polyamory, the open uh, conversation, and I'm just like, you're talking to the wrong person. <laughs> I'm an expert. I, I, I'm happy to claim expert on a lot of things. This is not the area I feel like an expert in. This is the area. This is an area that I feel like I am just trying to figure this crap out, like everyone else. So, well, and, and it's uh, interesting that for you that you know you've uh, gone right to the length of erotic rock star more than most people yeah. ever will, and. Yet, like, we find you landing in a committed relationship, having a baby, getting married. And like you said, yeah, your mum's death had a lot not, to do with that. But it, It's not 100% white picket fence monogamous, um, nor is it free-for-all poly. Um, we, we use the term monogamish. I love that, too. We, <laughs> Have you trademarked that you? No, it's, it wouldn't be mine to trademark. <laughs> it, it existed before me. It's good. So um, we... Uh, we are each other's top priority. We are the vast majority of each other's time <laughs> outside of our work. But, uh, you know, we've had a variety of different kinds of experiences through the course of our relationship, and there will be many more in the future. Um, uh, if, like right now, and, and it's, it, what it is is an ongoing conversation that seemingly never ends. Uh, <laughs> that uh, d- depending on where we are in our, re- our relationship, sometimes it's more open, sometimes it's more closed. Um, I think you tapped on it there. It's a con- it's about 
the freedom to have the conversation. I don't think a lot of couples feel like they could ever have that conversation. Well, I want to have a, a relationship in which we can have a conversation about anything and everything. And again, this is an area where uh, sex can often be compartmentalized. We have couples who feel that way about everything else. <laughs> but when it comes to sex, they have their different things that they don't share their, their fantasies, they, they hide desires. Because even if you're in a monogamous relationship for, uh, for your entire life, I dare you to tell me that you've never experienced a sexual desire for somebody else um, throughout that time. Whether you acted on the desire or not is a separate thing, but but the, the question I would then have is, if you do feel the desire, do you feel that you're able to speak or express that desire to your partner? Um, what does that do? How, how does your partner react? What are you afraid of? What is your partner afraid of? Uh, like It's the it's most important to me to be able to have honesty, transparency, and communication. And don't, I'm not going to say that this has all been easy. There have definitely been, we have definitely had difficult conversations and arguments uh, rooted in the poly and open uh, question before. But, you know, I, even though like right now where, uh, even though right now where our agreement is rooted in like, um, while we're in the same space, if, uh, don't have penetrative sex with somebody else. Um, if that's going to change, you know, let's talk about it first. Um, nonetheless, if she, if I suddenly found out that she went and had sex with somebody else, it would be a problem in our relationship because there was an agreement broken, but it wouldn't destroy the relationship. Hmm. You know, it would be a, it would be a big conversation, probably many conversations, um, primarily in what, What's going on that had you feel like you couldn't be honest and transparent with me? But to me, it's just, I don't want that to be a game. Uh, I don't want that to break it, you know? And I think that it's that, that thing about expectation versus agreement again. You know, I think there's so many just unspoken expectations, yet that's beautiful. Like out of the conversations you've had, difficult or not, you have agreements around it. Not just this expectation. Yeah. Expectation you you shouldn't. Was well, the expectation I shouldn't flirt with someone? Is the expectation I shouldn't look at another person? Is the expectation I just don't fuck them? What what you know? Until it all gets spoken out in a conversation and agreements made, it just all stays as this weird expectation. Yeah, yeah. I'm just not really a fan of that. And the, the things like that can arise in our relationship sometimes. Um, but uh, I think that we're pretty good at sniffing them out and bringing them, you know, bringing them forward and, and talking about them. So the, the, the evolved masculine is your, your work now. What, yeah. what, what have we got as men? What have we got wrong about masculinity? Oh God. <laughs> um, well, historically I think that we've, we've come to associate masculinity a lot with, being domineering, controlling, competition, winning, power over others, um, uh, taking what you want and at whatever cost. And uh, heart is missing hmm. from all that, you know? Um, so we think. And that's, and that's another piece of it. Like, I think that, that we tend to relate to uh, masculinity as unfeeling, heartless. As, yeah, heartless, non-emotional, cold, um, 
the love is for chicks, <laughs> you know, mm. men want sex and we're much more complicated than that. Uh, yeah, we men have a tendency to have to be strongly sexually driven. That's why use is such a gateway for deeper personal and spiritual development. But we also do have emotions. Some men are more in touch with those emotions. Some men are, feel pretty uh, disconnected from those emotions. It doesn't mean the emotions aren't there. You're just more disconnected from them. And that's, that's a big part of the cultural shift that needs to happen is for us to be able to, to be able to be connected to our emotions without necessarily feeling ruled by our emotions. In New Zealand, we call it like the rugby culture, which if you play rugby, the goal is to, like you say, destroy the other guys sure. on the other team. So a form of war, um, it's a battle. And if you feel pain, you suck it up and you don't mm -hmm. complain about it. You just complaining or not complaining. That's, that's one thing, you know, but the problem with that type of approach, and I do think that war and corollary uh, related sport uh, is a big part of what has taught us to disconnect from our emotions and disconnect from our bodies, disconnect from feeling really, because in, in war, it's it seems a lot safer to not feel. Uh, to just drive forward. It feels it's a lot safer to uh, to be disconnected from your heart if your if your job is to kill. When you're really connected to your heart, how the hell are you going to kill? So it's it's not very convenient for governments and powers that be for men to be really connected to our hearts. Um, and uh, you know, and the question is, how long as a, as a species do we want to be so warfaring? You know, I mean, I would like to see, I would like to see a time where we actually do experience um, some form of peace on Earth, so to speak. And uh, again, I think that's really rooted in how we're how we're raising men and being able to connect to what it is that that we are feeling, being able to connect to to like, you know, you can feel pain, and um, you don't. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to complain about pain to be able to feel what's going on in your body. When you're not feeling, first of all, you're much more likely to sustain a larger injury. You know, this has happened to me and it's happened to many men that I know because we experience some sort of injury or something's wrong and we just ignore it because we learn, just, just ignore it mm. and just push on. And next thing you know, uh, what would have been a little thing that maybe just getting a massage would have fixed now has turned into, you know, chronic back pain for the next 25 years or more because uh, <laughs> just just shut up and keep doing what you're doing uh, no freaking feel and if something's off do something about it <laughs> yeah bring it into the light so so anyway so that, that i think is a big part yeah. of of uh what what we get wrong with masculinity i think that the, a lot of how we learn to relate to our sexuality and how we learn to relate to women is really is really off as well um, you know we we learn to tie up our ego in our sexuality um and uh, please forgive the, any heteronormativity to any of my explanations. Feel free to chime in. I'm definitely used to speaking more to a hetero uh, audience in that regards. Um, There's still a masculine-feminine polarity, regardless of sexuality. So. Absolutely. There, there's huge crossovers, and there are also, at times, definite differences. Totally. Um, 
And all, usually when I'm speaking, when I am speaking very specific, I'm aware of the differences. It's just sometimes very complicated to always speak to. Uh, that we learn to women, you know, women, sex is something to prove. It's, it's one of the ways we prove that we're real men. And again, the heart is disconnected there. And the, the thing is that when we have sex with a woman, particularly good sex with somebody else, um, the heart does get involved. Sometimes even when we didn't want it to. Mm. <laughs> I mean, that's why there have been one night stands that have turned into marriages. Sure. You know, <laughs> that, uh, that good sex connects. That it's not just about genitals rubbing against each other. There's, there's uh, an energetic connection. There's two people being with one another, naked with one another, not just physically naked, but emotionally naked. And thing, things happen. How you, how you relate and connect happen. I think that in our Tinder world, we've, we've built these walls up to try to stop that. And to, I, I think that the, the kids these days are, are there's this phrase that, that I've been hearing of uh, catching feels. Um, like uh, feelings, like you know, starting to feel something for somebody that you're having sex with. How novel! Yeah, it's like <laughs> that. Um, you know, as if the catching feels is the is the anomaly, whereas it, I think it's, it's, that is a new uh, cultural, I don't know, expression of our time that sex is a you know historically has always been about catching feels. <laughs> it's a it. it Sex is great. Great sex is physical. It is emotional. It is intellectual. It is spiritual. It's everything. That's what makes it so friggin' powerful. And I've certainly had sex just for sex. I've had sexual experiences that were um, just about conquest, in all honesty, that were about, because I can. I've had sex that was just about pure animal attraction that was really good, for that matter. Um, and without a doubt, the best sex I've ever had is the sex that was everything that hit all those different buttons. I don't remember the question. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> um, well, there's a lot of guys that have maybe never experienced that. So uh, you, you're a very, um, I'm sure you're a very magnetic personality. I know people are very drawn to you. So, uh, and that will continue after this podcast. So how can people, I think that the sex part is part of my magnetism though. I think, you so. know, it's the, yeah. the, um, a, the, the comfort in my own skin, including my, my sexual skin, I think is a huge part of charisma. And so for men who really want to have more charisma, focusing on your connection to yourself is honestly the place to start. Because when you're insecure, you're not going to have that charisma. When you question your, your own value, you're not going to have that charisma. When you're worried about whether other people are going to think, you're not going to have that charisma that charisma if there you know any of the parts within you that you are uncomfortable with are in the way of you being as magnetic as you could be how do people uh, get in touch with you i know you've just recently launched the evolved masculine in australia um and you just you've literally just got back there so that's probably as close to new zealand as you are at the moment but um Certainly. how do people keep this conversation going how do they get involved with your community how do they get involved with you 
Yeah, well, evolvedmasculine.com is a great place to start. Um, there's also a contact form on there, as well as a couple of free gifts, a 24-minute video titled uh, The One Thing in Bed That Separates the Lover She Remembers Forever from All the Men She Forgets. Um, so that's a free gift for you, as well as the Evolved Masculine Blueprint, which is like me basically detailing out in a 10-minute audio um, the Evolved Masculine as I define him, um, while also including a, a kind of a writing prompt after you've listened uh, to it to really explore what your own evolved masculine would look like or be like. Of course, Destin Garrick, uh, yeah, Facebook.com slash Destin Garrick or my personal profile, which is Destin Garrick's uh, Destin Garrick profile. At Destin Garrick on most social media, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram. Um, Facebook is definitely my most used uh, thing. In, uh, in January, we launched the Evolved Masculine Path, that's EMP, uh, as in like an electromagnetic pulse, EMP. Oh. Um, blasting through the world uh australia uh, for the first of our new franchises um led by dave mcdermott an incredible uh, man that I actually met at a rich litvin intensive hired me as an apprentice and then ended up starting a, a franchise uh he's been absolutely incredible um so he leads that out there but i'm a i'm still a big part <laughs> of the experience if you end up joining um i was just there co-leading the deep masculine empowerment retreats uh out there how many men did you have on that one Fifteen. Nice. Yeah, yeah. But the, for the retreats, that's been our our preference. Um, we may end up growing that. Uh, if we do, the way we're going to end up solving it is to bring on more people onto the coaching team, so that we can have small groups within it. Um, or the other alternative, we've been uh, building out a digital version of the program, so it'll be at a lower price point, um, uh, but all digital, all pre-recorded video content and things like that that you can do on your own. Um, and so one idea that we're exploring is when that digital version is ready um, and to simply start focusing on scaling that, then the, those types of intimate retreats we might do on like a higher VIP mastermind style at an increased price point to keep the, the numbers low. So we're undecided at the moment, which means if you're not ready to jump in at that kind of a level, now is the time to join before we make that change. <laughs> Perfect. Um, yeah, and you've been putting some great great videos and stuff out on Facebook lately, which is pretty cool. A lot of good free content as well. Um, you should see the stuff behind the paywall. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll put all the links to that in the, uh, in the show notes. Uh, last question, always ask people, I'm fascinated to hear your answer. Uh, it's about your dark side. Um, okay. if you still have one, if you relate to it, if you know how to embrace it, <laughs> what's there for you when you hear about dark side? <laughs> <laughs> we could spend an hour on that. Um, <laughs> oh God, my dark side. Let's see. Um, one aspect of my dark side is, um, is related to my ego. Um, I put a lot of energy into balancing that part of myself but it's definitely part of me. I can, um, while I'm great in front of a camera and the spotlight and all that part, I also crave it. And there are pros and cons to that. Um, I separate myself from people, you know, and I think that they're, that they're, when I'm in the ego, that separation is a, you know, is a, carries a, can carry a certain better than um, type of a flavor to it, which I'm not, particularly proud of and uh, i'm not always connected you know that that's 
that's not dominant all the time by any means, but it definitely comes up at points. Um, uh, which is why, you know, I, I balance it considerably with that other part of me that's, that's, um, rooted in a strong humility that's rooted in, um, just deep service and just opening myself up to be a conduit for that service, that there's something larger happening in the world. And I'm just, just said yes to being a part of, yeah, and that my primary existence is to help other people step into more of their own greatness. What's the dark part about it? Like, what's the the ego part? Like, what's the part that you keep in the dark that you don't like talking about? Um, well, even even where I just said it there, I don't speak very very often. And I notice that I want to kind of minimize that 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 part that's like that can carry an air of superiority that I have spent my life dedicated to self-improvement and you know when that part's speaking up it's along lines of i've dedicated my life to self-improvement most people haven't what's the likely outcome of that um and um i can for example sometimes i can each part of my shadow has also borne forth some of my greatest things that i have to offer so i I can at, carry an element of extreme irritation with <laughs> to, to put it to put it in my uh, ego's version with other people's fucking incompetence, uh, and uh, I I've never been particularly happy about that uh, part of myself or that level of irritation that comes through. So I've also put a lot of energy into spaciousness the cultivating a spaciousness for other people's processes to, to allow other people to be where they're at. And, and, and there are ways in which I can be so incredibly spacious and there are ways in which I can be having incredibly short views, have be easily irritated when somebody else who I'm relying on doesn't do something as well as I think they should be able to. So that's annoying. Yeah. <laughs> I know that a lot of it's yeah. rooted in the way in which I, can hold that same type of thing with and for myself. Like I have always held an unreasonably high bar for myself and it's a big part of what has gotten me where I am, but you know, it's carry some self-flagellation beating myself up type of thing along the way, which again, I've also done incredibly uh, a lot of work around, you know, to cultivate more like self-love and self-acceptance, but those things came later. Another thing you did, you did a great video on Facebook this week about that. I guess it's that dark side about, your ability to kill. Uh, yeah. yeah. Do you want to just talk about that quickly? Uh, well, first of all, I didn't properly credit in the video, so I'll do so here. Um, that actually came about from one of our guests, pre- well, our guest presenter at the Evolve Masculine Retreat in Australia, Dane Thomas, who is on one of my uh, podcasts um, in January, I think. Uh, he did an exercise with us all on uh, the killer slash lover archetypes. And uh, I came out of that uh, exercise and shot that video. So, yeah. yeah, it was very cool. So was, People can look it up, I guess, but it was... Um, yeah, I mean, based, what did you get from it? Uh, I loved it. I mean, it's it's just acknowledging, you really acknowledged, like, you went deep into that place that said, uh, I'm a lover, you know, I'm definitely a connected, loving person. But there was a part of me, I have to acknowledge, that if you did something to my family or my kids or whatever that I could kill somebody because of that. And I, I questioned, I, I, like if you, if you tried to harm, harm me or kill me, if I 
if I would if I would kill. And um, I, I think that if it really came down to self-defense, I, I would or I could. Um, I noticed, though, that I have a little bit more question there than I do, like, if, if it was my fiancé who was being threatened or our, or our child, in which case I have no question. Um, I, that's another thing I've really noticed since the since, – particularly since the pregnancy, mm-hmm. um, but honestly since this relationship at all, that my protector and provider instincts have shot way up. <laughs> uh, it's amazing how how deep that that can run. It's a, a great example, though. Like with the the video, you know, of of how to bring a dark side into the light. You know, just not necessarily deal with it or do anything about it, but just bring it out and acknowledge that it's there. Talk about it. Look at it. Check it out. Oftentimes, I think that that alone can shift things so of course, much. Yeah. I was fascinated by the, the comments on the video too. That was a, as always, the comments sections on the internet provide endless hours of entertainment, <laughs> particularly on that video. Um, Destin, thank you. This has been yeah. fascinating and a real, real privilege to get to know you more. And for the record, I have a vast dark side, and there's m- many more aspects of that that I would ha- happily be able to speak about if we had the time. Yeah, I appreciate that. <laughs> I trust that's true. Um, thank you for the work you do and like it's it's endlessly fascinating it's something I'm fascinated by it's a conversation that we don't have enough so thank you for um, yeah I, I do want to say that, that particularly for um, for your listeners um, I know that if this if the areas around who, who you are as a man or your sexuality or how you connect to women is an area that's difficult pain or painful for you or you really struggle around it can be incredibly overwhelming incredibly painful and often leave you with a place of feeling like there's nowhere that you can really talk about this um if this is you uh reach out this is my work um i live to help around this and i'm very good at it. so, so let, let, let me help you yeah there's no one that's um, been more committed to this than you so thank you brother Thank you, my man. Thank you for doing what you're doing. Appreciate it. Well, there you have it, folks. My conversation with the fascinating Destin Garrick. What do you think of that one? Was that deep enough for you? I hope so. You can check out Destin at his website, destingarrick.com or evolvedmasculine.com and all over social media. And don't forget to give the show a rating or review on iTunes if you haven't already. Please, please, please. That would mean the world to me if you did that. So just take one minute and do that now if you haven't already. Uh, Thanks, guys. Love you guys as always. And I'll see you next week for episode 26 of The Nathan Seawood Show. That was The Nathan Seawood Show. Personal conversations with powerful men. 